Artsville, Artsville, the happening town where art abounds. Artsville, Artsville, from Asheville town where art abounds. Artsville, Artsville, feeling mountain high and inspiring North Carolina. That's where you'll find us, amazing artists and designers. Oh yeah, Artsville from Asheville. Michael Maines, welcome to Artsville. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's so exciting to have you here, Michael. I, I know a little bit about you. I know a little bit about, you know, your gallery. But, you know, for our audience, please, let's start at the beginning. Tell us who you are and what you do. Sure. Uh, my name is Michael Maines, and I'm the director and co-owner of Blue Spiral One Gallery, which is located in downtown Asheville, North Carolina. And I've been with the gallery for about almost 12 years now and have been the director since 2017. Our gallery is a little bit different than maybe your normal gallery that you'd step into, mostly because of its sheer size. We're a 15,000 square foot gallery spanning three levels. And we've been doing this for over 30 years now. We just celebrated our 30th anniversary last year. And we uh, look forward to many more years. Uh, we focus on contemporary craft studio craft and fine art with a regional focus here in West North Carolina and the Southeast. But we have artists from all over the country and some international artists as well. Well, Michael, thank you for that, by the way. Like there was so much information in that. And that's so exciting. You, by the way, you have a dream job, don't you? I sure do. I mean, it's a, uh, it literally is my dream job. I, I love coming to work every day. I get to work with over 120 of my closest friends uh, as my artists, and I get to uh, spend my day with a team here that's uh, super talented doing what we all love doing, and, and every day is different here at, at the gallery, for sure. So it may be your dream job, but I bet you stay up at night hard to sleep. I bet it's hard to sleep sometimes because 15,000 square feet, my friend, that, I mean, that is a huge space. <laughs> Tell us about that. How do you do it? Well, you know, with us being in business and, and been doing it for so long, you know, I can't take credit for, you know, how the gallery started or got its roots and grew its legs. But how I do it is, is definitely a team effort here. And you're right. I, I don't sleep at night. I get up often and take notes and come up with, you know, ideas, sometimes crazy ideas of maybe exhibitions or artists that I can pair with each other, mostly my reason for getting up in the middle of the night, aside from my toddler, is client relations. You know, I work a lot with my clients and, and kind of directing the business here of the gallery. And so I work with clients all over the country. So sometimes I have to be up at weird hours just to communicate with them and sending things back and forth. Well, I'm guessing you're fighting time zones like we are fighting a time zone here uh, this morning. Uh, me being on the West Coast, you being on the East Coast, but you have clients all over the world. Yes. That's correct. Yeah. So definitely finding a time that works for both of us, as well as some of our artists as well. So checking in with them. I can't do a studio visit with somebody that's, you know, in the West Coast or, or somebody that's in Mexico or Spain, but we can definitely jump on a Zoom call and uh, have a virtual one. Well, you know, you were careful to mention, and I think, you know, very thoughtful and respectful to mention, of course, that you don't do it all. You have a team, but you also mentioned that 
uh, Blue Spiral sort of has become what it's become over time that you maybe are fairly new there. I've done a little bit of research and I, you know, I understand that John Cram was quite a legend, your founder, the entrepreneur who started the gallery initially. I think he sadly recently passed, so may he rest in peace. But tell us about John. From what I understand, he looms large and his story is quite remarkable. Absolutely. I'd love to, Scott. So John, it's funny, you know, John came to Asheville at the same age that I did, right around 23, 24. And he moved here because of the surrounding area, the environment, the landscape uh, really drew him. And then, you know, having a background in the fine arts, sculpture and and cinema in, in particular, he moved here because of the immense craft scene, the studio craft scene here in West North Carolina. And he decided that, you know, we're missing something and that would be a gallery, a craft gallery that really paid homage to the immense talent that was here. So he opened up his first gallery, New Morning Gallery, in 1972 in Biltmore Village, which is right outside the the infamous Biltmore Estate. And at that time, it was a very small little shop that was above a clother. And he had milk crates as the pedestals for his wares. There's this really kind of funny story where about a month or two into his business, the IRS came because he wasn't paying his sales taxes. And they asked him, well, how much have you made in the last you know, couple months or so? And the amount was nominal. It was very small. And it was kind of a, you know, a joke for the IRS agent. And he said, well, you owe this much. And if you're still in business next year, I'll be back you know, if I need to. Well, 50 years later, New Morning Gallery is one of the most successful craft galleries in the United States, winning you know, multiple awards for craft recognition and support. After some time from that small space, he relocated across the way to a square block where he purchased a building. And that building houses a 13,000 square foot craft gallery that focuses on utilitarian crafts and furniture. And it kind of took off. You know, there wasn't anything like it at the time. And there was definitely a need for it, not only for people acquiring or looking for that high quality handmade craft, but also all the artisans that didn't have a way to display and show their work. So he was providing things for kind of multiple avenues for people in this world, this craft world. Over some time of of having this successful gallery, he was approached by a woman who was the daughter of a turn of the century modernist. His name was Will Henry Stevens, and he was born in 1881, died in 1949. And like most gallerists, we get approached pretty often, you know, my dad's an artist, would you check out his work or my aunt or my, you know, whatever the case may be. And of course, like most of us do, we roll our eyes and and kind of brush it under the rug until it becomes insistent that we need to see this work. So John went to this woman's home and, and went to her basement and it was a pretty much, in lack of a better words, a treasure cove of this most prolific, wonderful artist that was way ahead of his time. So he started representing his estate with her, realizing in a very short amount of time that New Morning was not the proper venue for this caliber of work. And so the reason for me telling you that is the impetus for Blue Spiral was to give Will Henry Stevens a proper home. And the rest, you know, just kind of took place as far as what would accompany that caliber of work uh, what he wanted to showcase, and where we are today. What a serendipitous meeting. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and it's kind of, I had mentioned that, you know, John and I moved here at roughly the same age, and I feel like my journey here has also been as serendipitous. You know, I 
I was working for another craft artist up in Akron, Ohio. His name is Don Drum and he's got a Don Drum Studios and Gallery. And I was working for him as well as working at various museums at the time. And I told Don, I said, you know, I want to move to the South. And he said, you should go to Asheville. And I said, I should go where? And he said, you know, I know this guy named John. We know each other from the craft fair shows. I think you'd really like him and you should meet him. So I drove down here. I met with John. In four days, I left with a full-time job with him and a, and a roommate. And then a month later, I moved down with all my belongings. And I've been working for him, you know, ever since. And what year was that? How many years ago was this? That was in 2010. 2010. So you've been in Asheville now 11 years. Correct. Oh, man. And life has changed a lot, right? I mean, you moved there as a single guy. You're married a father now, are you not? Exactly. Yeah. I, I moved here single and had a roommate and, you know, we, we're still friends. She actually lives in, and I think she's in Guatemala now. And I met my wife who's, I was, I luckily I was the only person she dated when she moved to Asheville. <laughs> I kind of cornered the market there, but, uh, and then we had a son Harvey in February of 2020, which is probably the craziest time to have a child, but also one of the best times to have a child. And now that I think about it and kind of retrospect. Well, congratulations. You know, one of the stories that you you were just telling, you talk about discovering uh, artists and the struggle artists have, you know, it's so tough, right, to be an artist. And sometimes artists, you know, work in obscurity, right, so many times. And, you know, trying to find a gallery to represent them can be challenging, you know, and, and for a gallery, right, you know, the cold call, <laughs> the cold call on the uh, gallery door is a, is a tough one, right, because you hate we hate telling anybody no, let alone an artist, but that's, you know, not how it works, right? Uh, you know, let's be thoughtful about, you know, managing and navigating the gallery system, you know. So I'm thinking about the struggle artists have generally, right? And I'm thinking about it within the context of craft artists and artisans as well and the struggle that craft artists, artisans, makers, um, the struggle they've had within the fine art world writ large, you know, in terms of finding that legitimacy. Maybe Asheville even struggled with some legitimacy in terms of the art world vis-a-vis New York or London or what have you. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, the perception of arts and crafts over the last 30 years, how it's changed? You know, is it finally getting the respect it deserves? Sure. I'd like to think so, but there's still a long way to go for sure. I mean, there's there's definitely a gray area between fine art and craft or fine craft or studio craft, you know, whatever the terminology that you're most comfortable with saying. Historically, crafts come from a utilitarian perspective or usage, right? They're things that people made for everyday use. Uh, Because they're being used every day, the value of them is perceived as something that's less than something that would be a one-off or an original piece and not something that's from a factory or or something uh, like that. So, you know, it, it kind of started with one of the biggest pushes for studio craft or, or studio movement was with the, the glass world, really. So in Europe, glass has been studio craft glass movement was going on for years where it was coming out of factories and moving into smaller shops. But it wasn't until, you know, 40 years ago or so when that kind of mindset of taking glassware out of a, a functional setting and into a studio and into a school setting for that matter that it became popularized and became more accessible to somebody that wanted to get into it, but didn't want to be a line worker. They wanted to create something of their own, something that was unique. So that definitely helped. And and there's formative figures that were pushing that. And we just so happened to be in a place, a hub that that was all happening here. 
And we house, you know, institutions like Penland School of Crafts, where that really started and took off other places like Toledo and, and Seattle were hubs as well. But we're just kind of talking about our little area here. And going back to, to talking about John, you know, he kind of knew of this happening and saw this and took a leap of faith to create a venue for these artisans to showcase their works and, and then to help elevate what they were making to a broader audience. You know, before John, as far as Asheville and a whole, you know, the Biltmore State, you know, Biltmore Industries, Fiber Industries here. We are a tourism-driven economy. People have been visiting here for years. Uh, I wouldn't say it's, it hasn't been until maybe the last decade or so that people are really coming here, maybe even the last five years, really coming here because it's an arts destination. And because of the work that John did and other formative arts and leader, art leaders and, and political leaders in our community that have supported the arts, there's one gallery opening up after another. There's more artists moving here. There's a huge support system for artists and craftsmen. A true community that you said has really exploded in the last five years. Absolutely. Yeah, it really has. So it strikes me that there might be some challenges in terms of, you know, growth is a two-edged sword, right? It's on one hand, it's nice to have the tax dollar and it's nice to have the economy, you know, boom. That being said, sometimes it's hard to maintain affordable housing. It's, uh, you know, growth and development can be challenging. It's hard to maintain the culture or protect the culture that made the place so special to begin with. What are some of the challenges that Blue Swirl is bumping up against as you see Asheville grow and become more of a destination for art tourism? Keeping up with the growth, for sure. I mean, we are, you know, kind of busting at the seams, even at 15,000 square feet. We are having a hard time keeping up with our clients, with our artists, with people coming in. I mean, we're, a, you know, a team of five here, but you know, I could easily double that number and we'd probably still be just as busy each individual one of us. All that being said, these are good problems to have, right? The more people that come to town for whatever reason, whether it's art or the environment or, or our beer or food culture, uh, they're coming here for one reason or another. And hopefully, you know, they'll catch wind of us and they'll, they'll come in our doors and, and either be just purely inspired by whatever they're seeing, or they might want to, you know, take a part of that home with them back to wherever they're visiting from. You know, we have, like I mentioned earlier, we have, there's a ton of artists that live here and have moved here. Housing is definitely an issue, you know, anywhere that, that kind of grows as fast as, as we are growing. We also have a number of galleries. I think there's, you know, maybe 20 galleries of different calibers and missions in our downtown radius, which is about two miles. That's an awful lot of galleries in a small town like ours. Some might see it as being competition, but if you think about it, no two galleries represent the same artists, right? So you're really only competing against yourself and trying to create the best gallery, the best format, the best programming. And it's great that we have so many other galleries that are also supporting other artists that are also great because we can't represent everybody and they can't represent everybody. So this kind of collaboration and shared interest in the arts here is really what makes us thrive. And I think there's still room to grow. I think we need to be diligent and careful about how fast we, we do grow. But there's some really cool things happening. And the geography of our artscape here in Asheville is, is changing from this craft-centric to maybe more contemporary, uh, more international kind of showcasing of, of artists and then bringing in also the clients that are more attracted to those, so diversifying the audience as well. 
Well, an environment, right, is so powerful in terms of shaping who we are as, as human beings, let alone artists, right? And it strikes me that the environment in and around Asheville, the natural environment in and around Asheville is magical. It is after I have a confession to make. I have been to Asheville and I have been to Blue Swirl. So I speak from a little bit of, of familiarity. And one of the things that blew me away was just the natural beauty of the area. And I'm guessing that is a huge draw, not just for tourism, people who want to come enjoy the natural environment, but for artists who want to come and bathe and bask in this energy that is so palpable and so special. And it's hugely influential, uh, it seems, in terms of the kind of work that comes out of Asheville. And so talk a little bit about that in terms of of how the natural environment there in and around Asheville influences the creative community. Sure. I mean, the most obvious answer would be with our, our landscape painters, right? I mean, we have a large amount of landscape painters, and particularly ones that paint plain air. So they're going out into this environment and they're painting right on site. We've hosted uh, several exhibitions here that focus on plain air painters and they're wildly successful. I mean, whether it's somebody that is moving here and has a second home and they want to, you know, showcase that natural beauty on their walls or somebody that wants to take that home with them, the number of artists that are using the outdoors as their resource. There's a numerous artists that are doing that, but you know, it's not just realism. You know, there's, there's artists that are, you know, taking it for, with photography, with influences in glass and, and other natural materials. We have ceramicists that only use clay from their backyard. So there's, there's rich amounts of material here that aren't the final piece. It's the parts and the pieces that make up that final composition or object that they're making. Currently at the gallery, we have a show called Rooted in the South, and it's a group exhibition of artists that are all represented here. And it's, you know, all the 2D artists, the painters are depicting images and scenes from the South, whether it's your typical landscape or your BP station on the corner of, in, you know, in Alabama. And then all the object makers are creating, you know, sculptures and vessels and other pieces, uh, three-dimensional pieces that are all made from materials that are found in the South or in our region. So, you know, folks are coming here not only to draw inspiration from the scenery, but also use that scenery to create their work. Well, it was one of the things that just struck me. I can see how people want to move there. <laughs> when I was there, it was just, it's just such a beautiful place. And, you know, the shows that you have going on right now at Blue Spiral, you know, you've got 15,000 square feet, three floors. This place, your gallery is immense. It's so beautiful. And by the way, you know, as I said, I I was lucky enough to walk Blue Spiral while I was there, and I was just blown away personally. And let me just, you know, say, you know this, you hear this all the time, but just coming from me for what it's worth, it just, it, it blew me. It was so inspiring. I was so in awe, you know, because you have this big space and it breathes and exudes such positive energy and beauty and passion and precision. Right. The, the level of precision <laughs> in this work, you know, that I saw while I was there was, was just remarkable. And so I have a maybe a more specific question when it comes to programming Blue Spiral. Like, do you think about three different shows on each floor? You have several shows going on right now. You've got Rooted in the South. I think you've got Botanicals. You mentioned the other show about the weaving of Rooted in the South. Uh, talk to me a little bit about how you approach programming, because programming for a 15,000 square foot gallery is obviously a very heavy lift. 
you know, talk about your scheduling, talk about your program, as, as, certainly as you look into a new year of 2022. Of course. Well, you know, it's funny that you say that as far as looking into the, the new year. Well, we found out over the last, you know, five or so years, time is our best friend. And so we are planning our shows out two to three years out, especially these larger shows, group exhibitions, or ones with artists that are maybe a little bit more high profile and need some time or maybe ones that aren't as prolific as other artists. And by doing so, not only are we giving them the time to create the work for the show, but it allows us to ramp up the marketing for the show. It allows us to dictate the rest of the space and really think about the gallery as a whole. So, you know, you had mentioned, you know, this kind of precision. And so when you walk into the gallery space, there might be four or five different exhibitions happening on the main level and lower level, and maybe even a special exhibition on our upper level. But as you walk through the space, you feel this connection between the various shows, between the various artists. And that's very intentional. It's a way of doing kind of having a wayfinding system without the arrows pointing you which way to go. So as you mentioned today, you know, we have the botanical show in our main gallery, which came off the heels of a major exhibition from one of our artists that represented for 30 years, Robert Johnson, which had a very botanical kind of naturalist feel to it. So naturally, we wanted to have a show that kind of carried that feeling over, but took it to a totally different, more contemporary direction, showcasing a whole different caliber, different roster of artists that we either represent or bringing in for the first time. And then as you walk to the back of the gallery, there's there's two different shows. Uh, Amy Patansu has a, a, a weaving show. She is one of the most talented fiber artists I've ever worked with. Her technique is definitely one of a kind. And as you get up close to these works, you really get a feel and a sense of that precision that you had mentioned. Across the way is a two-person show with Dean Allison, who's a cast glass artist, paired with a fiber artist, a contemporary quilter, Luke Haynes, who's a Nashville native, but uh, resides in LA now. Having those two shows, the fiber show with Amy and then Luke's quilts has a nice conversation to it. But then within that show, there's a nice conversation between this really hard-edged, heavy material of glass casting with this really soft, playful quilting that Luke's doing. And then downstairs is the Rooted in the South show that I mentioned earlier and has a very kind of natural feel to it. The coloration, the tonality of that show is perfect for this time of year because another reason that we haven't mentioned yet why people come here is leaf season. Leafers is a real terminology and people are coming here just to watch the leaves change here because of the the progression that it, that it takes place. So. Typically during this time of year, we'll have a show that kind of plays off those kind of fall foliage colors and, and kind of that, the natural feel and materials. So, you know, our programming, like I said, timing, you know, we're planning out as far as two, sometimes three years out and we switch out our exhibitions every other month. So we do, you know, four to five shows uh, every other month at six rotations a year. So about 24 shows annually, which is more than most museums do in the country. And like I said before, I wouldn't be able to do this without my team. And there's parts of it, not only the curation, but we're inviting the artists, the letters that go out, selecting the work, the marketing, the digital advertising. And then, you know, once the, the show comes in, the mounting of the show and then pieces are selling. So the shipping of the show. So it's definitely, you know, a full circle for everyone here. And it keeps us really busy. That's for sure. Well, and it's one thing to be moving, you know, 56 by 8 canvases, but, you know, you're moving dozens and dozens of highly fragile works of art you know the logistics around that uh, just as a practical matter must alone keep you up at night 
God forbid, you know, an art mover bump a pedestal <laughs> or something. Uh, Insurance. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Oh, boy, oh, boy. Yeah. How do you insure a, a priceless, one-of-a-kind uh, original artwork, right? Well, that's just it. I mean, you know, it's it happens very rarely when a piece is damaged in the gallery in particular. And then, you know, occasionally something will happen, you know, if we're shipping. It's, it's just the world we live in where something happens. But it's it's always covered, and the artist always gets, you know, paid for the work. But what's happening is that artist is losing a part of him, right? Or in a part of us. And that client that, you know, purchased the piece, luckily, you know, our success rate outweighs our failure for sure in that department. And it rarely happens, but it still hurts nonetheless. <laughs> well, how many artists do you represent specifically? Because with a 15,000 square foot space uh, in 24 shows, give or take a year, your roster of artists must be significant. Yeah, we represent regularly about 100, 120 artists, and it's a good number for us. You know, it, it adds the diversity. I think what makes the gallery so successful, both for clients who are acquiring work, but also just visitors. I and mean, we often get people in here that use the gallery as a resource, whether they're students coming in here to work on a report or school groups coming in here, or just people just are visiting that want to get a free exposure experience in the arts, seeing world-class museum quality pieces. Uh, so we work with, you know, so there's that diversity. So there's about 120 artists working in all different mediums, whether it's glass, ceramics, wood, fiber, metals, painting. We kind of cover it all and it makes for a great selection. It really helps with our programming and curating shows. Oftentimes in our upper level gallery, when I'm creating little spaces as we turn over our exhibitions, I'll pair one or two or maybe three artists together and just seeing that connection between them gives me and, and my colleagues an idea for a show that, that we end up mounting, you know, a year from now. So having that diversity of our artists, both in material, but scale, subject matter really gives us the materials we need to create kind of really interesting and provoking, you know, exhibitions and programming. You know, I'm thinking about our audience right now, and our audience, I know, is going to be comprised of, you know, artists and art lovers at all levels, right? And I'm thinking, Michael, that this could be a really unique opportunity for some of our audience members to hear directly from you, you know, someone who may be hard to get a hold of, uh, given how busy you are and what's going on. You know, so I want to pause for a minute and sort of, you know, think about the artists out there who might be listening, who's probably or maybe seeking some advice. Maybe they're young. They have aspirations of showing in your gallery someday. What advice would you give a, a young emerging artist or maybe even a mid-career artist out there right now who is looking at craft maybe for the first time even? You know, are there any words of wisdom that you might uh, give to an artist out there? Yeah, I mean, there's sure. For one, I mean, you know, the work, do the work, right? I mean, be prolific. I had an artist, one of my artists, Ward Nichols, who's in his 90s now, has been with the gallery for 50 years. He said something to the fact of, you know, if I work every day, I'll be great. If I work every other day, I'll be good. If I work when I want to or, you know, whatever, I won't be, you know, so something to that effect where you, know, you have to work every day. You know, this if, if this is something that you want to do, Treat it as it is your career, you know, clock in, clock out mentality, if that's the kind of you know, work ethic you want to have. As far as, as myself here at the gallery, you know, I'm very busy, but I'm also really approachable. And the gallery is super approachable, too. I've worked with a number of students 
emerging artists, mid-level career artists, both ones that we represent and ones that we don't represent, just to either help hone their skills or create or offer critique for their work, whether it's based on just purely visual aesthetic and principles, or if it's more career building, kind of what's the best way to display my work? How do I frame my work? How does my website look? You know, should I have an Instagram account? What kind of photographer should I use? My photos aren't good. You know, all these kind of questions do come to us both at the gallery or just, you know, individually, you know, between myself and, and my colleagues here who have a, the open ear to talk with, with these artists. One thing that, you know, you hinted at it earlier, Scott, about how to approach a gallery and, and how does one get into a gallery. That's definitely a tricky question. There's no easy answer. There's no equation. There's no magic potion. A lot of it has to do with timing. Just like most things in this world, it's, it's about who you know as well. It definitely doesn't hurt. I would say that a lot of the artists that we represent or new artists that we brought in are either by reference from one of our already regularly represented artists, uh, from a client of ours, or purely from us searching via Instagram, which is a you know a huge tool for us here at the gallery, because, purely because it's a visual platform. You know, But when somebody wants to approach a gallery, most galleries have a submission process, and it's usually found on their website. Ours is under our gallery tab, and it says submission guidelines, and you would just submit following those instructions and we would look at them you know quarterly as a team and we'd reach out if we were interested coming up to a, a gallery with a portfolio under your arm is is not the best way to approach it it can be seen as an old school approach but it's also in my opinion kind of more of an unprofessional approach i gave a talk with a school group a, a couple of years ago and i made the connection of approaching a gallery like you were going to apply for a job if you saw a job posting that you know XYZ was hiring, you went to that company and said, hey, I, I saw you're hiring. I'm here for my job. I'm here for my interview too. You wouldn't do that. You, know, you would go through the proper steps. You'd fill out an application. You'd wait for the callback. Same with colleges. You know, I want to go to your school, so I'm here to start. You know, it doesn't really work like that. So you know, treating this like any of those other kind of instances where you uh, do your research, does my work fit in this gallery? Do they already represent artists that are similar to mine? If I'm a glass artist and this gallery represents no glass artists, is it a good fit? And then when you do that research, you can use that gain knowledge to kind of put your foot in the door. Hey, I noticed that you had a show called Rooted in the South. I paint Southern imagery. You know, it would be a great fit for if you ever have a future exhibition that's along the similar lines. Those are just a few, you know, little tidbits that might help. Yeah, thank you for that, Michael. That's outstanding. So on the flip side, right, for our art lovers out there, collectors, people who maybe they're new to collecting, maybe they're new to collecting craft, maybe they've been quite comfortable collecting photography or collecting, you know, paintings or something, but they're new to the craft space. What advice do you give a new collector or collectors coming into your gallery for the first time? There's different reasons for collecting, right? The reason for loving something or having an immediate reaction an emotion towards a piece or pieces or an artist. For me, that's the main reason for acquisition or wanting to learn more about that artist, that first connection. Secondary would be, you know, the history of that artist, where they are in their career. And then thirdly, for me, thirdly, not meaning less important, just in my th theology of why I, me personally collect or some of my collectors when I'm talking to them is the inherent value or the investment purpose of that piece. Depending on what kind of collector you are, that third part uh, is going to weigh in differently. And depending on what caliber or way that your level of collecting you're doing, 
it also plays into that. But for here at the gallery, you know, it, it's mostly about making that connection with a client or a prospective client and a piece or an artist. And some of my favorite moments with, with clients, new clients in particular, is when it's kind of the first for them, when they're being introduced to an artist or a piece. We had a young couple in here about six months ago, and they purchased their first piece of art. And it was super exciting. I mean, I got to talk to them about, you know, asking, how do I do this? How do I, do I just say I want to buy it or what, how does this work? And so I walked them through the whole process. I talked to them about the artist. They were in their, you know, probably late twenties, I'd say mid to late twenties. They just got engaged and they're buying this first piece of art together for their new home. And it was a really wonderful experience for them and for us. Fast forward six months to their wedding, right? I get an email from them saying, we want to buy a thank you gift for our parents. And we're looking at these several painters that we, we liked after looking at it. And can you help us pick the perfect gift for them? This is our budget. Those instances, those stories, those moments is really why I do what I do. I mean, it's the making those connections and introducing people to this world and breaking these barriers of what does it mean to be even a collector? You don't have to spend a lot of money to be a collector. You don't have to collect the same thing to be a collector. Some people collect clothes, some people collect shoes, some people collect books. You know, it doesn't matter as long as you have that genuine relationship with those pieces, those objects or whatever it may be that you're, you're feeling that attachment to. And when we work with new collectors and that are just starting off, it's a wonderful kind of entry point, but it doesn't end there because to be a collector, it means that there's residuals. There's time after time that you want to keep coming back. And we want to create an environment and experience here that they want to continue working with us in some capacity. And one of the things I remember about the gallery in terms of, at least in my experience that day, the price points were very approachable. I mean, you had what I would call, you know, maybe forgive me if my jargon isn't quite right. You have price points that are kind of entry level, right? So for that new young couple or what have you. Uh, and then you, of course, you have very, very high end <laughs> prices for, you know, your more well-heeled or established collector. So it's it's quite a nice range. I mean, I, I feel like that's what people need to understand, at least in terms of Blue Spiral, like you have artwork people can't afford. Absolutely. And that's part of our approach. We want to be approachable. And just like the artists that we represent, it offers that diversity. But in the selection of those artists... There's one key factor that runs across the board, or, or I like to say is the thread between the gallery, is the craftsmanship. Everything is made at a very high level, whether it's $75 to $100 mug or, or small vase to a $100,000 painting by you know, a mid-century, kind of turn-of-the-century modernist or, or somebody that you know, went to Black Mountain College or something. We kind of run the gamut and making it a space that's welcoming, that offers kind of an educational experience as well allows people to come in, get exposure to these things. And what I love is I can have a curate a show or a space in the gallery, and there might be something that is $500 next to something that's $45,000. And you might go up to one of it and say, wow, this is amazing. Oh man, I can afford this. Or wow, this is amazing. <laughs> I have expensive taste. But aside from seeing the price tag, you wouldn't know the difference. Everything is made so well. And is displayed at the same caliber. We don't have a 500 and under room at the gallery. Everything gets the same space. And just like our artists, they're all treated and given the same exposure and representation as each other. Yeah, that's wonderful. It's always something that I want to point out 
to people who are listening, because I think, because we celebrate the high ticket items at auctions and things, right? And I feel like that is such a hindrance for artists and art lovers to come into the space sometimes because they feel like, well, I don't have millions of dollars. No, no, no. <laughs> you know, you can buy a wonderful, beautiful, original piece of artwork for $250, you know, you know, $100 something, you know, depending on where you go. And, and so, yes, I just, you know, I think this message is an important one to get out there, certainly as it relates to Blue Spiral and other galleries in Asheville and, and the amazing artists that work there, you know, because artists want people to have their art and own their art. They're, it's not in the artist's best interest to outprice their customers. <laughs> right. Well, Michael, as you know, you're there in Asheville. Asheville has become Artsville. I mean, this is why we call the podcast Artsville, because, you know, we want to celebrate American contemporary arts and crafts in Asheville and beyond. But Asheville has been on this journey, you know, to becoming Artsville. Uh, it strikes me that the important work you do and, of course, the groundbreaking, trailblazing work that your friend and mentor, John Cram, did over 30 years was, it was completely fundamental to Asheville becoming Artsville. You found an amazing life there, a, a dream job. You found your wife. You now have a family. You're living a beautiful uh, life there in Asheville. I mean, what do you think some of the misconceptions are? I mean, as we as we wrap up today, as we talk about so many things, but you know, really, what brought us together here is not just our love for art, but our love for Asheville. And and what do you want people to know about Asheville that maybe uh, they don't know? That's a tricky question. It's a go a couple different directions here, but you know, as far as what Asheville is, it's it's a wonderful place to obviously visit. It's a great place to live. I don't see myself going anywhere anytime soon. I'm pretty well rooted here. And in fact, you know, not only the things you mentioned, but now my wife and I have almost our entire family living here now too. So we, you know, aside from starting a basketball team, we could pretty much, you know, do whatever we want and 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 more people are coming here for various reasons. One thing, you know, as far as artists who are attracted to this location, don't feel that it's it, just because there's a lot of artists here that, you know, it's oversaturated. If there's something that you do that is unique and you can bring something different and additive to our community, it's all the more welcomed. But with everything and anything, it involves and requires hard work. Nothing comes easy. Nothing is handed to anyone. And if you work hard and, you know, hit the pavement, success can come, you know, and when you're surrounded by other creatives, both in the business sense and also in, in the in the creative kind of process sense, your work can grow, your practice can grow. And that's what I've noticed mostly. And it's a great community. We all kind of work with each other, at least at some capacity and, and try to work with each other at a different, more capacity. But there's this kind of energy of being open to lending a helping hand. One thing that I re remember when I first moved here that was I found really remarkable and something I had never encountered before was if you were having a conversation with somebody, more times than not, during that conversation, they would be giving you the names and contacts for somebody that you should be meeting, somebody that you need to know and have a conversation with. And that's kind of how our community works. And it's a really amazing thing that helps lift everybody. At the same time, you know, we all have our quirks and our you know, differences and, and, and we are kind of all striving to succeed and be unique. But at the core of it, there's this kind of beautiful sense of community, which is really nice. 
Well, and that's what artists need more than anything, right? Because, you know, oftentimes being an artist is a lonely, isolated kind of existence, right? And artists are sort of toiling away in their studios and it's hard to find community sometimes and have those, you know, water cooler moments where you can kind of come together and share and help problem solve. I think a lot of times artists feel like their challenges, their problems are unique to them when in fact, you know, many artists are having the same struggles. And so to be able to come to a place like Asheville and have real community and support one another, that seems like a wonderful, beautiful, priceless gift. Absolutely. I I couldn't agree more. Well, Michael Maines, one of the things I want to talk about before we sign off today, and you've been so generous, and I'm so grateful that you're able to sit down here with us at Artsville and talk about not just Asheville and your journey and your life there, but the great work that uh, Blue Spiral is doing. You know, one of the things I want to talk about is accessibility, because I noticed on your website, you have an e-commerce function. So anyone listening to this podcast all over the world can go to your website and actually buy art from the gallery and you will ship it to them. Talk a little bit about what's available on the website and how people can purchase. Sure. I appreciate the plug. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, we have e-commerce on our website and literally everything in the gallery, there's probably about 2000 or so objects, pieces in the gallery are available on our website. It's pretty user-friendly, navigable. And uh, you go to bluespiral1.com. You can search by artist. You can search by medium. You can even search by price point and find you know whatever you may be looking for. Aside from that, you can always call or email us at the gallery. We do virtual showings as well as you know in person. Uh, we're open seven days a week here. And we also have a really robust social media presence, both on Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest, and Twitter. Mostly Instagram, again, being a visual platform. But you know, having the e-commerce part of our, our business model here was something that I, I'm not going to lie, I was pretty apprehensive about. You know, it in some ways takes us out of the equation. But what I'm finding is when I get a ping at the middle of the night of somebody purchasing a piece at 3 a.m., not only is that something that I would normally not have captured, but how cool is it that somebody's looking at Blue Spiral's website, looking at our artists at 3 a.m. in the morning? I mean, that's that's amazing. <laughs> it's super cool. So, you know, in today's day and age, I mean, having that kind of virtual presence is utmost important, especially, you know, during, you know, COVID and we were shut down, having that really, you know, helps sustain us. And it's something that we continue to grow and I hope to grow. And we'll always, you know, we'll from now on be a part of our business here and what we do. That's fantastic. And I know artists must love that because you ultimately uh, help support them you know, worldwide then in many ways and and help increase their chance for sales as well as art lovers who, of course, can't get enough. (laughs) We want more all the time, please. Well, Michael Maines, I am so grateful for your time here today as we celebrate our mutual love for Artsville, Asheville, and uh, all the amazing artists and artworks that are developed and produced from that beautiful part of not just our country, but the world. Are you going to be able to get outside today for a hike? How's the weather? The weather is beautiful here, and I have some family in town, but I have a, a pretty packed day, unfortunately. But another reason why we live here is because we don't have just one beautiful day out of the week. We have several that we can hopefully take advantage of one of those. And uh, Scott, I, I want to thank you for, for having me. I want to thank Artsville. This has been a lot of fun. And I, I not only love to share my story, but John's story with everybody listening. And again, you know, look us up, 
Email us, text us, DM us or whatever. We're here for you and we look forward to hearing from you. Well, thank you, Mike. We will do that. And uh, will you do us the honor of coming back someday and talking with us again? Absolutely. I would love to. Fantastic. Thank you, sir. Have a great day. You too. Thanks for listening to the Artsville podcast. Please make sure to like this episode, write a review, and share it with your friends on social. Also, remember to subscribe so you get all of our new episodes. Artsville is produced by Crew West Studios in Los Angeles in partnership with Sand Hill Artist Collective in Asheville, North Carolina. Our theme music was created by Dan Ubik and his team at Danube Productions. Artsville is edited by We Edit Podcast and hosted by Captivate. Thanks again for listening to Artsville. We'll be back soon with another inspiring episode celebrating American contemporary arts and crafts from Asheville and beyond. Artsville, Artsville, the happening town where art abounds. Artsville, Artsville, from Asheville town where art abounds. Artsville, Artsville, feeling mountain high and inspired in North Carolina. That's where you'll find us, amazing artists and designers.